Listen now to the Word of God. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with seven diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people, and language, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So reads the Word of God. We knew from the beginning that this chapter would have to come in a series on Revelation, and this morning it has come, 
I considered just closing our Bibles and having a prayer meeting this morning rather than digging into this text, and yet it is an important one. It is the Word of the Lord. And this is surely among the darkest of passages in Scripture, surely in the New Testament, and surely for those who read it here and now this morning. The ultimate opponent of God and His ways and His people, the ultimate opponent of God in all of human history arises here and begins to do its work. The bulk of this chapter does not speak a happy word to the church. However, if we look closely, I believe we will see a word of encouragement this morning. A word of encouragement that against the dark backdrop of this text shines like a perfect diamond. The point of chapter 13 is that the dragon, which we learned in last week's text, is Satan, that the dragon operates on earth through two agents, the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth, together with the dragon forming an unholy trinity that intentionally seeks to displace the triune God of all creation. That's in essence what Revelation 13 tells us. Satan operates on earth through two agents, the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth as they're identified here, forming an unholy trinity that intentionally seeks to displace the triune God of all creation. So let's just walk through this chapter in three steps and see what we can learn about these familiar but confusing images. We'll, you see the outline that will follow there in the bulletin. There's first the beast out of the sea. We will look at him and give a bit more attention there because there's back, background for the whole chapter in considering who this beast is or what this beast is. For the most part in the text, impersonal pronouns are used, it. I'll go back and forth probably accidentally between it and him because it's hard for us to not uh, see this as a personage, uh, even though I think in many ways, though the ultimate antichrist, I do believe will be a person. I think there's an institutional component to that configuration that we'll run into with greater clarity in chapter 17 and 18. So we'll see. We'll move back and forth. First, though, we'll look at the beast out of the sea, verses 1 through 10. And then the beast out of the earth, verses 11 through 15, and then into the mark and the number in verses 16 through 18. So let's, let's get started um, and see what uh, we have in this text. First, the beast out of the sea, verses 1 through 10, and you can see right there in verse 1, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems, those are crowns on its horns and, and blasphemous names on its heads. I don't know that these are actually written, but his heads communicate blasphemous thought. As one commentator says, the power of Satan expresses itself as antichrists in concrete historical opposition to God's people. 
So these aren't just images we're talking about. These are realities that we are talking about, taking the form both of persons and of institutions through the course of human history. As we heard from 1 John 2, they, these antichrists come up again and again, and there will be one ultimate final one, and that's the one we're talking about here. The sea here represented chaos for the non-seafaring Jews. We've talked about that in other places. That image is familiar to us from the Psalms. So a beast out of the sea would be uncontrollable. It would be untamable, undefeatable, we might say. Some suggest the sea also may refer to the Gentile world or that the beast arises out of the Mediterranean there west of Israel, like an emperor's ship arriving from Rome, appearing over the horizon. Many different thoughts have been put into who this beast is and how to understand this beast. More helpful, I believe, with regard to Old Testament background are the two beasts of Job 40 and 41. There are many similarities. The imagery seems to be drawn from there. Leviathan, out of the sea, and behemoth, out of the earth, two massively uncontrollable monsters that represent the handiwork of God and no threat whatsoever to Him, but they are untamable terrors to any mere human who encounters either one of them. That imagery from Job 40 and 41 almost surely stands behind Revelation 13 in some notable and helpful ways. Clearly, though, even beyond that, this first beast here is modeled after the four beasts of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read that text for you, a few verses, so you can even flip over there if you want to. I'm going to read six or seven verses here to just review what those beasts were like that Daniel saw that represented successive world empires. I'll identify them as we move past them. Daniel chapter, three, or chapter 7, beginning in verse 3, says, And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Remembers Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? That is Babylon, as we learn in Daniel's prophecy, continuing in verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh, probably the Medo-Persian empire. Uneven bear, uneven uh, power distribution between these two nations that shared power in their day. Verse 6, after this I looked and behold another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Greece, in the wake of Alexander the Great, four heads arise, four kings under him. Continuing on in verse 7, and after this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. He's talking about Rome. 
It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. This beast in Revelation 13 is a virtual composite of these four beasts from Daniel 7. Look at verse 2. It was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. We hear elements of each of the four beasts from Daniel 7 here in this beast that rises out of the sea in Revelation 13. Clearly, again, Daniel 7. It's a backdrop for this text. Even the seven heads here that are mentioned in verse 1, while while surely the number of completeness in this beast's opposition to God, as we've seen that symbolic number seven appear over and over again through the text, it's also the case that the four beasts in Daniel 7 had a total of seven heads. There were three of them with one each and one with four. So this beast is presented in some notable ways to just remember that succession of world empires that were represented by beasts in the vision of Daniel. Continuing on, the ten crowns here picture ruling authority, but we're told explicitly here that the beast's power was derived from the dragon, verse 2, Satan, as he was identified back in chapter 12, verse 9. And notice, verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. It's an interesting detail. And, and just seems clearly to recall Genesis 3.15 where the serpent's head would be crushed or bruised. The word means either. Crushed by the woman's offspring. Now down in verse 14 we learn that this particular wound was caused by a sword. But elsewhere in Revelation... As commentators have noted, a sword often signifies Jesus' judgment of his enemies in the present, as in chapters 1 and 2 and following, and also in the future, chapter 19. Jesus' judgment of his enemies is presented as a sword. And then, a, a, a wonderful verse from Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, and I say wonderful, it, it ties these thoughts together in such a unique way. God talking about delivering His people and being the answer to their need. Isaiah 27, verse 1 says, in that day the Lord with His hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And then it continues on on that theme. So this is a beast that has suffered a mortal wound and yet is still active. Making us think of the defeat, surely, that was accomplished over this beast at the cross even though his work continues on deceiving the nations and accusing them before the throne of God. But then continuing verse 3 here, its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. You can't even kill this beast. An apparently mortal wound healed. 
Chapter 17 also adds a bit of clarity to this picture because the beast returns there in very similar imagery. Not only does it seem like this beast first appeared back in chapter 11, verse 7, where it arose from the bottomless pit, remember, or from the abyss in order to make war on the two witnesses and conquer them and kill them. Many point out that the bottomless pit or the abyss could be an apocalyptic, an apocalyptic synonym for the sea, coming up out of the deep, we might say. So he's first introduced back there in chapter 11, verse 7, but in chapter 17, verse 12, its ten horns are identified as, to read verse 12 from chapter 17, ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. So it seems like this refers to kings. A very similar description is given of the ten horns in Daniel 7, a little bit later in that chapter, verse 24. So we see that this beast was worshipped and held in awe, verse 4, by the whole earth, verse 3, and I'm saying this in past tense even though we're looking future, it was considered invincible, who can defeat the beast? And they also worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. So this is false god, false worship. In, in John's day, he was almost certainly thinking of Rome as he was writing this, just as was the case in Daniel's vision of Daniel 7. And in chapter 13, it seems that we confirm this. Chapter 17, verse 9, the seven heads of this beast are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Rome is famously known as the city of seven hills. But then in the very next verse, the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Verse, then verse 10, they are also seven kings. <laughs> That's why this is confusing. The text itself is giving us two entirely different meanings for the seven heads of the beast. It represents the city that the beast is from, or representing, and it's also seven kings, five of whom now have fallen, not future kings, but five are gone, one is, and the other is yet to come, as John is writing this. Verse 10 in chapter 17 continues, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while, and for, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth king. But it belongs to the seven and goes to destruction. We'll wait until we get to chapter 17 to unpack this a bit and see what it's talking about. But it's, it's giving us some basis for understanding what this beast's description is trying to tell us, what we are supposed to learn from it. And we recognize that we have to stand back and let the text decide for us what all of these things represent because in different places and in different ways it does tell us. It's a complex picture regarding the beast. That's why we're taking a little bit of extra time with this first one to recognize some of the complexity, but then also hopefully to get to a point where we can understand and appreciate what we're actually being told about it, seeing the forest apart from the trees, the trees of the particular descriptions and backing up and seeing, all right, what, are we, what do we learn here? 
this is a complex picture regarding the beast, how, how it fits into this letter and how it fits into the whole testimony of Scripture. This is a pretty important personage that we're meeting. But what we can know about this beast is that it represents evil ruling power that seeks to put itself in the place of God in the lives of His creatures. I think that's the simplest way to express who this beast is and what in the world is he doing. With all of these signs and symbols working together, we can know that it represents, this beast does, evil ruling power that seeks to put itself in the place of God in the lives of his creatures. Verse 5, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, matching the blasphemous names on his head from back in verse 1. This is the beast's truest identity, by the way. It's a blasphemer of the true and living God. Continuing on in verse 5, and just keep your finger on the text between verses 5 through 8, uh, actually, and then we'll finish in 10, uh, and we'll just walk through this phrase by phrase to get some of this description before we move on. So, this beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. There's that time period again, the period we've seen that evil is allowed by God to reign if you're looking for a single short definition of what this 42 months or three and a half years or 1260 days is referring to, that's a good and helpful way to say it. What it represents when it shows up is the period that evil is allowed to reign by the sovereign decision of God. You're handed over to the beast for 42 months. That's the way Scripture speaks of it. And just for the record, I'm not going to walk through them here, but my notes are put on the website along with the recording of these messages, and I've listed each of the passages where this time period seems to show up or be alluded to with regard to future prophecy, uh, both Old and New Testament, where it's pointed to. And so that's just helpful information that will be there. Continuing in verse 6. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So, he's accusing still. That question has been raised. Verse 7, and it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That's hard news for the church. But Jesus told us that this was coming. John 15, verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. Just a little bit later in that same dialogue with the disciples, he says, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. I think that hour has come in Revelation 13. And authority was given to the beast, continuing in the, verse, in the middle of verse 7, was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Isn't it interesting that that's the way that's described? This is the full range of humanity from which the redeemed will be ransomed. But it's another way of saying that God in His sovereign providence and purpose has allowed the beast, to exercise authority over the whole earth for reasons known only to God, 
but for reasons made, or for the fact of it made clear in the text. And those who dwell on the earth, verse 8, will worship it. Our God allows an amazingly long leash for those that war against Him. And surely down here in verse 10, here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. That's a brief picture of the beast that arises out of the sea. And it sets the context for appreciating what's going on in this chapter. So, Let's move on to the next section, verses 11 to 15, and we'll take a bit less time with the second beast, because even though it's an additional character, it seems to be almost an appendage of the first beast, and you see that in verse 12. Plus, the four beasts that were originally said to come up out of the sea in Daniel 7, verse 3, were said later to arise out of the earth in Daniel 7, verse 17. Similarly, there were, they were first described as kings in Daniel 7.17, and then later as kingdoms in Daniel 7.23. So the text itself is giving us blurry lines in terms of the identification of the beast and how he works. I think the beast out of the earth is folded in together with the beast out of the sea in Daniel 7, and they're unpacked and separated a bit here in Revelation 13. Just something to note by the way the language of the text works in those two chapters. And to quote a very well-known commentator on the book of Daniel, rigidity of interpretation is out of place here. That's a very good reminder. Scripture itself blurs the borders of these characters so that we get the point of what's being said and don't get so pulled in that we can't see the forest for the trees. Scripture wants us to see the forest in these matters. And the trees are the forest, but we can get so captivated by the details that oftentimes we miss the big picture. Scripture's helping us not to do that. As for this second beast, verse 11, it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. So it sort of looked like Jesus, but it sounded like Satan. That's what verse 11 is saying. Or as George Ladd put it, it's a parody of Christ. Religion prostituted for evil ends. And together with the dragon, as we said at the beginning, together with the dragon and the first beast, this forms an unholy triumvirate. It forms a false trinity that I think is intentional. There is an evil trinity seeking to take the place of God. Greg Beale, or I'm sorry, this is uh, George Ladd wrote about this just in summary, that the second beast represents religion employed in the support of worship of the beast is seen from the fact that hereafter the, the, the second beast is called a false prophet, chapter 16, 19, and 20. So the first beast represents civil power, satanically inspired, the second beast represents religious power employed to support civil power. So they're working together. Here's where we see more of the institutional side. This doesn't mean they're not personages, but in addition to being people in the end times, 
I think they're also representing institutions. Again, as we'll see a bit more clearly as we move into especially chapters 17 and 18. In terms of the actual activities of this second beast that comes out of the earth, these activities are then described pretty vividly and clearly in the verses that follow, 12 through 15. Let's just walk through them like we did the verses a few moments ago. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. That's a helpful description. So that means this second beast is not a competitor. It's a cohort of the first. That's where it said. It looks like they're, they're just working together as this one is almost an appendage of the first. And it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. You can hear him talking. This is almost sounding like Animal Farm at this point. You can hear this, this great resilience of the beast out of the sea being praised by the beast out of the earth. You can't kill him. Look, you've got proof right in front of your eyes. Verse 13, it performs great signs. Sounds like the magicians in Egypt during Moses' day, doesn't it? It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. We saw it happen, they will say. So it's flashy. Verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. If the primary character of the first beast is blasphemy, the primary characteristic of the second is deception. This is his primary work, deception, aided by flamboyant displays of power. Continuing in the middle of 14, telling the people to make an image for the beast. So, introducing idolatry. Telling the people to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. That repetition tells us this is a big piece, an invincible leader. That's what his sidekick is telling everyone. Verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak magic tricks, proving that this beast is worthy of worship. And thus, to finish verse 15, causing those who would not worship the image of the beast, to be slain. There's the basis. We've proven that this beast is God. So be damned if you don't worship him. There's the two beasts. But this unholy trinity and the false prophet in particular don't stop at parading false miracles and demanding idolatrous worship. This unholy trinity also imitated or will imitate the sealing of the elect. Here's where we talk about the mark and the number, verses 16 through 18. Verse 16, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, 
to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, verse 17, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name, meaning those two are synonymous somehow, its name and its number. And wow, (laughs) have these two verses, uh, together with the one that follows, filled the church with debate ever since this letter was first delivered to Asia Minor two millennia ago. We surely don't need to survey all the proposed meanings of the mark of the beast or the number of its name. That would be, in fact, quite impossible. You wouldn't believe the range of options. But I do think there are a few things that we can say about both the mark of the beast and the number of its name that will cut through the fog just a bit and help us know how we can best understand these two realities in this chapter. So let's take them in order. The mark comes first. And as we've already said in this series, not just today, but several times since first encountering it back in chapter 7, this mark of the beast seems to be just the latest imitation on the part of Satan and the beast and the false prophet the latest imitation of God, particularly with regard to the seal of the living God that we saw back in chapter 7, verse 2 through 4, mentioned again in chapter 9 and then alluded to a couple of other places. And I would suggest to you, this is bold, I would suggest to you that almost certainly this mark is no more visible than that mark. When we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, we don't expect to be able to see a visible sign. I think that's the point of reference here. It's unlikely, therefore, that we're talking here about a barcode or a QR code or, or, or some other marker or chip. It's very unlikely that we are talking about anything like that. Slaves may have been branded in the ancient world to show ownership, or soldiers or religious zealots may have been marked by some form of tattoo to display their faithful devotion. We see evidences of that in history. But almost certainly, the seal of the living God is the point of reference here when we're told about the mark of the beast. And as to the economic consequences for not bearing the mark, which is so often cited for why it must be visible, I would just suggest to you that it was no problem during Israel's exile in Babylon for Daniel and his three friends to be identified as not honoring the idolatrous demands of Nebuchadnezzar there in that nation. They were spotted without any mark on their flesh whatsoever, and it was because of their behavior. It was because of how they conducted themselves. I think we should read this text with that in mind. Might worshiping the beast be the mark of the beast? The number comes next. 
The number of the beast's name, we're told in verse 17. Then verse 18 adds this. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and its number is 666. I'm going to quote Greg Beale quite a bit in this section, because I really appreciate the thorough rendering he gave to studying what this could be and to how the text works. I don't know that there is a more exhaustive written summary anywhere than in his extensive commentary on the book of Revelation. Just to be clear, we don't stand with Greg Beale in our interpretation of Revelation 20, and we'll make that known when we get there. But what a careful student of God's Word who has preached from this very pulpit and helped us be better students of the Word. And I truly appreciate how he's handled this section. I would commend it to you if you're interested in reading further on the subject. He makes a helpful statement here about verse 18 and saying this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. He writes, John is not calling for an exercise of brilliant intellect, but for a commitment on the part of his readers to discern evil spiritual realities in order to protect themselves from compromise. In other words, what I think he's saying is that even the simple in the church should be able to hear this and know basically what to do with it. And I think that's the way the Word of God is written. When we get into the depth of complexities of how some have written on this subject, I, I, I can't read it. I've even heard some talk about the fact that Jesus is going to return whenever he can figure out the chart. That's interesting. My intent is not to poke fun at that, but just to say, as we press harder and harder, we get more and more complex to the point where none of us can understand it. And I just don't think Revelation 13 is supposed to be that hard. So let's talk a little bit more about it. He's calling his readers to be discerning. The question is, how is one marked by the beast, by its name, such that he or she is identified as belonging to it? And I posed the question just a moment ago. Simplest answer, we show that we're marked by the beast because we worship the beast. I believe that is the mark, just as it is with the lamb. That's how the mark of the Lamb is demonstrated. We walk by the Spirit and we worship and serve the true and living God. How are you known as one who bears the mark of the beast? You do that same thing in reverse. I think that's what Scripture's talking about. And when we worship the one, we earn the wrath of the other. That's just how it works. It's that simple and that clear. It was D.A. Carson, who I first heard say, either we bear the mark of the lamb and earn the wrath of the beast, or we bear the mark of the beast and earn the wrath of the lamb. That's what Revelation is teaching us. So, a word to God's people, don't worship anyone but the true and living God through His Son, Jesus Christ, aided by His Holy Spirit, the real Trinity, and guided by His Word, and you will have nothing to fear with regard to the mark of the beast. 
I think that's the whole truth. But it leaves us with a question, what then does 666 mean? So let's talk just a little bit about the number. What does 666 mean? To what does it refer? Well, once again, the list of alternatives is endless, and I feel pretty confident that it's growing even as we speak. It's always expanding. Gematria is the word that you'll often hear in this conversation. It's just uh, numbers magic, right? Uh, in Greek, for instance, assigning numbers to letters and then allowing that to be the basis by which you figure this or that. You figure the number of a name. In Greek, alpha is one, beta is two, gamma is three, and so on up through the first nine letters. And then the tenth letter, kappa, is ten, and lambda is twenty, and mu is thirty, and so on. Then you turn names into numbers and see what they add up to. In this system, Nero Caesar is one of the favorite options. It's probably the one most commonly suggested. The problem is, from those who understand linguistics far better than I, but you can read in detail about it, the problem here is that this identification is based on a misspelled Hebrew transliteration of the Greek form of his Latin name. I'm glad to hear the chuckles. Triangular numbers are another approach. You understand triangular numbers. You can talk about it forward, but it's a little easier to do it backwards. 666 is the triangular number of 36, which means if you add together each of the numbers, 1 through 36, it'll total 666. That's supposed to make you go, ooh. <laughs> 36 itself is a triangular number. It's the triangular number of 8. And coincidentally, in chapter 17, verse 11, the beast is the eighth king. That's not really helpful, though. That's circular, isn't it? So who is this eighth king? Well, it's the Antichrist. Oh, okay. Well, who's the Antichrist? Well, he's the eighth king. That doesn't get you very far, does it? So that's helpful, but it brings no clarity. It doesn't cut through the fog. But these do tell you how far many have gone to show their understanding by calculating the number of the beast. Personally, as I said, I like Beale's suggestion here. And he is not the first one to make it by any means. It's a very familiar approach that's been present for centuries, but he just wrote a thorough rendering of it that I find very helpful. Seeing the fact that the very next verse, chapter 14, verse 1, that we oftentimes miss because we see a chapter break, understanding that the very next verse takes us right back to the Lamb and with Him, 144,000 who have His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads, that, my friends, is significant. That's in the text. 
That's the next statement that comes from the pen of the Apostle John. This shows us, in Beale's words, that a contrast is intended between the beast's name and the Lord's name. If the latter, the beast's name, symbolizes a pure, I'm sorry, if the latter, the Lord's name, symbolizes a purely spiritual reality, which it does, then so does the former, namely the beast's name. It's a spiritual reality. This is true also of the beast's number, since its number is synonymous with its name. And as to how to understand 666, he continues, the number 7 refers to completeness, and it is repeated over and over again throughout the book. In fact, I've been looking for a good time to mention this, and now is a good time. We're in the middle of another 7 right now, even while we're in the interlude. Between chapter 12, verse 1, and chapter 15, verse 4, there are seven segments to a vision, each one introduced by, then I saw, or behold, something like that. But we're in a number seven, and we barely notice it because it wasn't announced before we moved through it. But John is just interweaving sevens throughout this prophecy. Bill goes on to say, but 666 appears only once and only here. And from this, he says that this suggests that the triple sixes are identified as a contrast with the divine sevens and signify incompleteness and imperfection. Even going into such detail to see how each one of the sixes in the set, sets of seals and then trumpets and then bowls is talking about the work of the beast and the sevens are all the consummation of the kingdom. So this suggests that the triple sixes are intended as a contrast with the divine sevens and signify incompleteness and imperfection. But then we might ask the question, if the number six is intended to be understood in this way, then why three sixes here? And again, Beale suggests that the triple repetition of sixes connotes the intensification of incompleteness and failure that is summed up in the beast more than anywhere else among fallen humanity. He says, in the Bible, three also signifies completeness. Therefore, six repeated three times indicates the completeness of sinful incompleteness found in the beast. The beast epitomizes imperfection, even while appearing to this fallen world to achieve divine perfection. That starts resonating with the text in ways that we can say, oh, all right. This is capturing something that is standing in opposition to God, which is the very character of the beast as it's laid out here. This idea has merit to me. It's broad. It's categorical. And I think I would go so far as to say it's clear. So any leader, any leader throughout history in diametric and evangelistic opposition against God you understand how I'm using evangelistic there, right? Any leader in diametric opposition against God who's evangelistic about that, trying to win others to his view against God, is Antichrist, as John identified in 1 John 2. 
There are many antichrists, and then there's going to be one ultimate final one. So any leader in diametric and evangelistic opposition against God is antichrist. So we're talking about Nero, we're talking about Domitian, we're talking about Stalin and Hitler and Mao in our own past century. And who knows how many more before the end approaches. This seems like the most viable option to me and surely the most in keeping with what we read in the text. It might not be a bullseye of an answer, but it gets closer than anything else I've suggested today. That said, where is our encouragement? Where is our encouragement here? Again, we've gotten so far into the trees right now, we want to back up and see the forest. Where is our encouragement in Revelation 13? I said at the beginning that I believe we'll see a word of encouragement here that against the dark backdrop of this heavy chapter will shine like a perfect diamond, and I believe it does. And I don't believe we've heard it yet. You may have noticed, though, that I skipped a verse as we moved through the text. I'd like to go back to that now and finish there. Look at verse 8. And we'll use verse 7 as an on-ramp and read through verse 9. The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. We've covered all of that. Now for the rest. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb. We might say it in order to just be a bit more clear. All who dwell on the earth will worship it except for those whose names are written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. In summary, those who bear the seal of the living God simply do not need to worry about receiving the mark of the beast. And they're not just freed from it at the last second like some sort of a shoestring catch. They've been set apart from eternity past by the sovereign election of God to be out of the reach of the beast. Jesus himself referred to this in his teaching on the end times. He said in Matthew 24 that false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, talking about what we see here in this text, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The clear implication here, despite the ominous sound of Jesus' words, is that it's not possible for the elect to be led astray in this way. If it were possible, these guys are so convincing, even the elect would be confirmed. But <laughs> that's not possible. That's how the text works. We gain that very understanding right here in Revelation 13, verse 8. Surely there will be some among us who are destined for detention. Chapter 10 
I mean, sorry, verse 10, under this 42-month reign of the beast, I said we don't have to be concerned about receiving the mark of the beast. But we will feel opposition right on up to the day where God purposes to take His church out of the world, at whatever point that that happens. And He seems to prepare His people throughout His Word to stand firm against whatever persecution and opposition they face. So at whatever point that the church is removed from feeling this, we will be kept. Now, some will be detained, others will be martyred, second half of verse 10. But everyone's name, whose name has been written from before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain, will not be drawn in by the beast, and therefore will surely be spared the coming wrath of the Lamb. That is our encouragement this morning. Do you find that encouraging this morning? Trust in Christ frees us from any fear that we will receive the mark of the beast. It's not going to happen accidentally. Worshiping the beast is the sign. And what an encouragement to know that it's not dependent on the strength of our own faith, but that the sovereign purpose of God is what stands firm in this text, saying, no fear. The elect can't be pulled in to this false understanding. No one is able to pluck them out of my hand. That is our encouragement this morning, and that is our hope for all eternity, trusting in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ to absorb the wrath of God against our sin has placed us beyond the reach of the beast. Even though we may feel His opposition, but for the church to live as Christ and to die as gain, there is no loss in being alive in whatever day is being talked about here and being a part of whatever people group is in the spotlight. That's a word for all of God's people who have trusted in Christ as Savior, Jew and Gentile alike, male and female alike, young and old alike, to the praise of God's glorious grace. And with that, let's pray together and give thanks for our crucified Savior. As I pray, those who are serving communion and the musicians, please return to the front. Heavenly Father, help us to be encouraged by this text. Dark as it may be, complex as it may be, help us to know that when we are on your side and you are on ours, we have nothing to fear, for even in the day of opposition, you will give us the grace that we need, words, actions, courage. Help us to trust in you, Lord God, and to be blessed by your grace to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we remember his death this day, may it be with an ever-deepened thanksgiving for what it represents to us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.